North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. North Korea's ruling party vice chairman Kim Jong-chul seen in the Beijing airport there. But a warning too from the U.S. this morning that getting rid of North Korea's nuclear weapons could take 15 years. It has a complex history and it has become the United States' top national security priority. We have an economic uh, sanctioned uh, plan that has put real pressure on North Korea. One of the key things is that the dialogue that matters most is at the very highest level. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS's Victor Cha, Mike Green, and Sumi Terry. In this episode of The Impossible State, we're calling it The Summit Saga Continues, I spoke with Sumi Terry. Sue served in both the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama as one of the government's most senior analysts on North Korea. Sue worked at the CIA where she produced hundreds of intelligence assessments and reports for the president's daily brief. And she served on the National Security Council and the National Intelligence Council. She's now at CSIS and is one of the key people that everyone wants to hear from when it comes to North Korea. Sue, I want to ask you about North Korean General Kim Yong-chol, who is heading to New York to meet with uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, Kim Yong-chol is reportedly uh, Kim Jong-un's right-hand man. Why is he going to New York? What are they talking about now? Well, Kim Yong-chol is Mike Pompeo's... um sort of counterpart, right? He is also a top intel chief Okay. beyond uh, Kim, being Kim Jong-un's advisor, top advisor. He's actually a man who was the man who was responsible for the Chonan sinking in 2010. That Tell us about what was the Chonan sinking? Uh, North Koreans torpedoed uh, and sank a, a South Korean vessel. Right. It ended up killing 46 sailors on board. Right. And this was under Kim Yong-chul's direction. He also I, bombed an island, yes, didn't he? Yes. In the same year, in 2010, he shelled Yampyeong Island. He was also the man who was responsible for Sony hacking. So this is this is the top intel guy. He's also top lieutenant, Kim Jong-un's advisor. But he also happens to be Pompeo's uh, uh, counterpart because Pompeo began this discussion when he was a CIA director. So Pompeo certainly hasn't sunk in any ships. He hasn't hacked into any major multinational U.S. corporations. This guy, Kim Young-chol, has served in North Korea since the very beginning, hasn't he? He's been, he served all three leaders uh, for the past 45 years of this dynasty. Tell us about this guy. Is he, he, he's the counterpart. He's the key right now to getting these negotiations back on track. What does Secretary Pompeo need to do to meet him at least halfway to get this going again? Right. So Kim Young-chul, obviously, now also Kim Jong-un trusts him. Uh, he's been around for many, many, many years. He served Kim Jong-un's father. Uh, he's been around. Uh, and, and he has authority to speak on Kim Jong-un's behalf. So I think if Pompeo can get out of Kim Young-chul what North Korea actually wants and no, what North Korea is prepared to give uh, when Kim Jong-un actually sits down with President Trump. Uh, I think we will have a fairly successful meeting if we can sort of get it down uh, on paper, or at least there's an agreement in advance of Trump-Kim Jong-un meeting. How did this change so fast? I mean, even uh, earlier this week, Monday, the Trump administration was talking about a potentially large package of sanctions. Uh, to put against North Korea. It had three dozen targets, including Russia and Chinese entities. What what happened between then and, and now to 
get to put the sanctions on hold? Well, first of all, North Koreans never wanted to cancel this meeting between Kim Jong-un and Trump. Their first two previous statements uh, criticizing Pence and Borton were their protests against all this talk of Libya model coming out of Washington. They never thought that Trump would actually cancel a meeting, the scheduled meeting uh, with Kim Jong-un. So I'm sure North Koreans were caught off guard by it. I'm sure North Koreans were surprised by uh, Trump's initial cancellation of the meeting. Now, this meeting is back on because North Koreans want this meeting and President Trump wants it. And when you look at North Korea's last statement that came out seven hours after Trump canceling the meeting, that was very conciliatory in tone. I have not seen a North Korean statement that's that conciliatory, actually personally praising U.S. president, saying Donald Trump's you know, bold decision or Trump-style uh, negotiation they were looking forward to meeting Trump. And so I think President Trump basically thought, okay, North Koreans are serious about meeting, uh, having this meeting, and so the summit is back on. So do you think President Trump did a good job with this? Well, I don't know if President Trump actually calculated or uh, thought that North Koreans were come back to talks. I didn't know if they, they actually, the Trump administration thought that or knew that North Koreans were not intending to cancel the meeting. But I do think that initial cancellation of the meeting, when Trump thought North Koreans were not serious, I think that was the right decision. And does the United States have leverage uh, in that we threatened to walk away from the table here? I do think so. I think the North Koreans were surprised by Trump initially canceling the meeting. And I think that does show that Trump is unpredictable. And I think that's a better way of dealing with North Koreans, that North Koreans shouldn't feel so comfortable thinking that Trump so desperately wants this meeting that we're about to, we're willing to take anything. That we, we are only going to have this meeting if North Koreans are serious about at least putting denuclearization on the table. Let's talk about the U.S. negotiators. Um, Sung Kim, who's a longtime U.S. diplomat, is going to be leading the U.S. team. Tell us about Sung Kim. Well, I'm very happy that Ambassador Sung Kim is part of our negotiation team. He's a veteran uh, negotiator. He was a six-party envoy, U.S. six-party envoy. He was a North Korea uh, envoy uh, in the State Department. He also was ambassador in South Korea. He knows this issue, the North Korean issue, inside out. He also knows how to deal with South Koreans because he was U.S. ambassador to South Korea. So I'm glad that he's part of this negotiation team. We need a seasoned uh, diplomat who has expertise of both Koreas. And I'm glad that Secretary Pompeo decided to bring um, Ambassador Song Kim. Right now, he's a, he, was an, he is an ambassador to, in the, to the Philippines, and that he's taking a break from that to deal with this North Korean issue. And I'm glad that Secretary Pompeo brought him on. So the team's strong. And, and in meanwhile, right now, as we speak in Singapore, the U.S. logistics people and the North Korean logistics people are preparing for the possible summit on June 12th or sometime after. What are, what are they doing? Well, they're trying to figure out all the logistics and security concerns. Um, usually when two leaders of two countries meet, this is a big deal. Um, normally, every single thing is figured out in advance. Uh, where, wh- how, What door a person walks in, wh- how long they're going to sit there, what they're going to drink, what door they leave. I mean, every little detail has to be figured out. And now, of course, added complication is that this is in Singapore, a third country. It's not in North Korea or the United States. Uh, neither President Trump nor 
sure Kim Jong-un is hosting this. And I'm sure Kim Jong-un has a lot of security concerns too, to leave his country uh, for an extended period of time. I don't know if he has ever done that except China. And now he has to leave North Korea on a publicly known date, at least for a few days. Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's just a lot to worry about. And I'm sure there's a lot of concerns that we need to work out. Do you think he'll do it? I think Kim Jong-un will do it. Otherwise, he would not have gotten this far or come along this far. Um, and all the symmetry and diplomacy that North Korea was engaged in for past few months was to lay the groundwork for this moment. This is sort of the, this is the climax of all, all that Kim Jong-un has been doing in the last few months. So I'm sure he wants to do it. So if this doesn't get derailed and it does take place on June 12th or sometime thereafter, they need to negotiate over North Korea getting rid of its nuclear facilities, its nuclear weapons. But their definition of denuclearizing may be a little bit different than our definition. Is that right? It's not maybe. It was very different, at least until now. Uh, every time we talk about denuclearization of North Korea, we're talking about unilateral dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And every time North Korea talked about denuclearization, they meant denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula if the regime security is guaranteed, if the U.S. hostile policy ends. And of course, by that, the North always meant uh, the end of U.S.-South Korea alliance relationship pulling out of U.S. troops from South Korea and ending U.S. extended nuclear umbrella that we have over South Korea and Japan. So obviously, U.S. and North Korea have very, we're very far apart when we're talking about denuclearization. So we'll see if Pompeo and Kim Young-chul and all this diplomacy right now, if we are able to narrow that gap by the time that Trump sits down with Kim Jong-un. What's our definition of denuclearization? I mean, initially, President Trump said he wanted rapid denuclearization. Now he's saying there might be uh, a phased denuclearization. What does that mean? Where? What do we want? I think Trump is now walking away from this rapid denuclearization because A, that's just very unrealistic, and B, uh, North Korea is reacting very badly to this Libyan model, the so-called Libyan model. Uh, so I think what the U.S. will settle for is at least a big down payment up front where North Korea dismantles something, gives up something, blows up something, or ships out uh, uh, ICBMs, or some big down payment up front, and then go through the sort of phased approach. So there will be sort of a hybrid model, uh, is some sort of a compromise between what Washington wants and what Pyongyang wants. Why is it so difficult to get them to denuclearize? Because North Korea sees nuclear weapons as the ultimate deterrent that it has against the United States. They've always said that they didn't want to be another Iraq, another Libya, and they see nuclear weapons, with nuclear weapons, no power, no country, even, even a superpower like United States, will dare to attack North Korea if they are armed with the ultimate weapon. And, and logistically, we're actually talking about dozens of sites, hundreds of buildings, thousands of people, a sprawling atomic complex that began six decades ago. So logistically, this can't be easy either. No, logistically, this is a huge undertaking. And you've seen this. Some scientists like Sig Hecker came out earlier uh, saying that this would take maybe 15 years uh, to really get to a complete denuclearization. And that's if North Korea even agrees to complete verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of their nuclear weapons program. You're talking about Sig Hecker of Stanford University, who has a report out that talks about that it'll take 15 years to get rid of all of the North's uh, 
nuclear weapons. SIG Hacker is also the only American who's ever seen any of their facilities up close. What does he mean by 15 years? I mean, how, how are they going to, 15 years is a long time. Right. Well, he, I think he has three phases uh, in his report that he's talking about. But that's because North Korea is already a nuclear weapons power. It has up to nuke 60 nuclear warheads. Uh, in addition to chemical weapons, biological weapons, it has sprawling complexes, hundreds of thousands of underground tunnels. I mean, it's it's this is a uh, just massive undertaking. And again, if that's if North Korea allows us to even uh, get into North Korea and, and roam around the whole country to verify that they have really gotten rid of their nuclear weapons program. When Libya gave up its nuclear program, it had nothing compared to, I mean, nowhere near this amount of material. Is that right? No, absolutely not. I mean, they, and I said, you know, North Korea right now, people assess have up to 60 nuclear warheads. Uh, it also has intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, that can reach continental United States. Uh, it's, I think this is why North Korea feels insulted every time we bring up a Libya model, because North Koreans are saying, we're not Libya, guys. We're North Korea. We're already nuclear weapons power. So that's really interesting. A lot of people have taken the Libya model to be insulting to them because, of course, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi ended up uh, being killed by his own people in the end in the end game. But it's really something different, as you just said. That's exactly right. So when we, the United States, talk about Libya, I think we're trying to just remind North Korea this is what we want in terms of timeline. We want to get to denuclearization fast. But every time the North Koreans hear the word Libya, they're not thinking about that. They are thinking about what happened eight years after Libya gave up nuclear weapons uh, program, uh, which is Gaddafi ended up being dead. Um, there was a revolt, and he died in a very gruesome death. And obviously, this is a fate that Kim Jong-un wants to avoid. So we're talking about 15 years. It, it needs to be a bipartisan agreement because even if President Trump is reelected, this, it'll take 15 years to get rid of all the weapons. This is going to go on for quite some time. It's in the Trump administration's interest to have a bipartisan uh, support for this. Absolutely. I, I'm not sure if exactly it would require 15 years, but what it would require is just many, many years. This is a very comprehensive, complex undertaking, and we need bipartisan support, and we need all Korea watchers or all people who have experience in Korea to come together. It's really all hands on deck uh, moment here. Do you think Korea watchers are starting to get on the same page behind President Trump with regard to uh, these negotiations? Initially, some people said, we've already given the, the North too much. Yeah, I think there's still disagreement uh, among Korea watchers. I think there are uh, Korea watchers who think still just sitting down with Kim Jong-un is a bad idea just because we are giving away uh, legitimacy. We're giving things to Kim Jong-un when Kim Jong-un has not earned them and when North Korea probably has no intention of giving up nuclear weapons program. So there are people who think we are already doing too much. And obviously there are folks who think, no, this is the time to sit down. Nothing has worked uh, with North Korea. This, so we, we might as well try this, which is two leaders meeting and to see if we can actually work something out. Well, what do you think? You're one of the very top analysts on North Korea. I feel that um, I was sort of against this initial meeting, but I came around to it because now it looks like it's going to actually happen. So I'm now hoping uh, that something will come out. Uh, I'm still very skeptical that it will lead to complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantling of nuclear weapons program. But now that the two leaders are committed to this, um, I hope that, um, you know, just hope that Trump does not uh, you know, agree to a bad deal uh, and might as well find out. So my position 
question is, let them have this meeting. Let's find out sooner rather than later if North Korea is even remotely serious. If they're not, at least this option is now off the table. This, that we can work something out through engagement, and we have to consider other options, not preventive strike, but other options like deterrence and containment and, and some other options that we can think about. What makes you optimistic that this will work, and what are some of your biggest fears? I'm not really optimistic, but if I can hope, I'm, I do hope that Kim Jong-un being a young leader, uh, having uh, knowing that he, he needs to rule North Korea for the next 30 to 40 years, that he would choose a different path uh, than his father and his grandfather, that he ultimately does not want to rule a poor, pariah, backward state, that he's willing to fundamentally change its relationship, North Korea's relationship with the United States. Uh, Do I have evidence of this? No. Uh, But I'm just hoping that he will prove to be a different kind of leader. But we'll soon find out. My worst fear is that President Trump will agree to something like a peace treaty or pulling out of U.S. troops from South Korea uh, for a fake promise uh, without seeing North Korea delivering anything. So North Korea does not denuclearize, does not give up nuclear weapons program, and yet we have now uh, either ended our commitment, alliance commitment with South Korea, or pulled out our troops from South Korea. Do you think South Korea would be worried and try to have their own nuclear program to develop nuclear weapons if they didn't believe the North had completely gotten rid of its nuclear weapons? Well, I think it does change the geostrategic landscape of East Asia. Uh, we have now China as the country that has paramount influence uh, in the Northeast Asian region. And, you know, uh, our alliance relationship with South Korea would be would deteriorate or would, would be over. And South Korea would want its own nuclear weapon. If well, they didn't believe the North had gotten rid of its program. Well, I don't see that happening anytime soon under this government. But in the long term, uh, once we accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power, that regional proliferation that you're talking about, South Korea going nuclear and eventually Japan going nuclear, is definitely a possibility and obviously of concern. What about the proliferation of weapons from North Korea to rogue states and potentially um, non-rogue state actors like ISIS? Proliferation risk is one of the greatest concerns uh, when we're talking about North Korea, because North Korea has always been a serial proliferator. It has proliferated everything under the sun for money. That's their history. They have not yet proliferated nuclear weapons that we know of, but the risk is always there uh, to countries like Iran and Syria. Uh, They have, North Korea always had relationship with Iran and Syria. So that risk is there. uh, And I think I would say that's one of the top concerns for the United States. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at Beyond Parallel. .csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.